I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the Trampoline Hall Podcast. I am your host, Misha Globerman. The Trampoline Hall Podcast is the podcast of Trampoline Hall, which is a lecture series that takes place in a bar. Uh, The bar is usually in Toronto. Sometimes it's in other cities, but mostly it's in Toronto. Uh, What happens at Trampoline Hall is people get on stage and they give lectures. Um, The lectures can be on any subject, sometimes silly, sometimes very serious. Um, But the one rule is that the lecturers cannot speak on subjects on which they are professionally expert. If you are a loyal listener of the podcast, you already know this, and it is what you have come to love. If you are new to the podcast, uh, you will eventually come to love it. Um, That process might be gradual. Such is the nature of love. Um, That's all I need to tell you about that. Oh, wait, also this. After each lecture, we take questions from the audience during a question and answer period. Um, This podcast does contain mature language, so that's uh, possibly a plus for you. Uh, This episode, the topic is trauma narratives, and the lecturer is Darren Patrick. Thanks. All right. Hi. Um, so the, the last time that I stood in front of a room full of strangers, although I didn't have a, a button-wearing cult, uh, was in 1996, and I was 12 years old, and I was a contestant in the St. Edward High School speech tournament uh, in Lakewood, Ohio, uh, close to where I grew up in Cleveland, so that's an important fact. Um, And my speech had been uh, entered in the original category, meaning that I I wrote it myself um, and was coached by my uh, junior high school English teacher, um, who is sort of the typical Renaissance Fair-loving English teacher, Um, although she added a sort of disciplinarian uh, bent to that. She was sort of a a bit of a badass, um, who um, actually, incidentally, went on to marry my father the following year, um, which... (laughs) is an important detail that you should keep in mind for later. Anyway, so um, my speech was um, titled Imprisoned. And, um, (laughs) yeah, I know. And it told the story of a woman, a mother, um, uh, whose lifelong battle with drug addiction and depression had landed her in prison twice. Um, And it was told from the perspective of a a third-person narrator, um, and it relayed sort of the experiences of that narrator visiting their mother in prison and exchanging letters and sort of dealing with the social ramifications of that. Um, And at the end of the speech, in in the very last two lines, I dropped this sort of autobiographical bomb, um, which went something like... um, I'm trying to channel that little 12-year-old. But he wasn't angry with her. 
how could I be angry with my mother? <laughs> Thank you. Um, and yeah, that was it. And I won. Um, so, um, which is what I'm expecting tonight, a trophy. So, um, Perhaps, like, more importantly, it, it sort of planted this seed um, about the, the power that seemed inherent in, in this ability to deliver this really traumatic story in a, in a very calm and composed way, um, you know, um, which, you know, according to the, the National Child Traumatic Stress Network, which is my favorite network, um, <laughs> after the Home Shopping Network, um, <laughs> The formation of a, of a trauma narrative is supposed to be this very safe, emotionally honest, non-triggering way for a child to deal with these kinds of events. Um, and, and it was true that my childhood therapist, Chris, um, had often encouraged me not to bottle it all up inside and, you know, to, to talk it out, to enact in her psychodramatic dollhouse, um, you know, the, the coping mechanisms that I had developed as a, as a child of a broken home. Um, and I don't know that she exactly had in mind that I should give a speech in front of a room full of people um, in which I sort of presented it as, a, as something that happened to somebody else, but, you know, that was neither here nor there at that point because, indeed, done. Um, so fast-forwarding a little bit, um, this sort of seed of, of the power of narrative um, is something that sort of got layered on as I grew up a little bit, so, you know, developing this sort of trauma layer cake um, because that's the most appropriate metaphor for this. Um, <laughs> The, the next layer, which was a sort of fruity layer, um, was when at the age of 15, um, my stepmom, the, the same one who had coached the speech, who started to suspect my father of, of cheating on her, um, correctly, I might add, with a, with a woman that he met on a, on a listserv on the internet uh, for horse enthusiasts. Um, <laughs> she had installed a, a keystroke recording program on her computer and on the computer, and in her sort of NSA dragnet, she caught my early explorations into gay porn. Um, so one day I came home and was confronted with uh, a choice clip, um, real video format, I think, um, called Bus Fucking. And um, <laughs> yeah, I know. Um, so that's a little bit of confessional. Um, so yeah, they, they, she started drinking black velvet out of her wardrobe, and shortly thereafter they were divorced. Um, and the next summer, uh, my dad um, ended up, for different reasons, actually, although his response to that was, you're not going to wave any flags in my house. Um, but um, he ended up kind of kicking me out of the house on totally trumped-up charges. I honestly think I was just kind of cramping his style with um, the horse enthusiast. Um, anyway, so by the time I got to college in 2003, I was feeling this really uh, sort of big relief and this opportunity to kind of reinvent myself. I didn't really know anybody. Um, it was the first time that I was going to maybe more openly experiment with my sexuality. Um, and um, actually, though, this was kind of the moment where I felt most pressured to construct myself very self-consciously through the performance of this narrative. Now, you know, a few layers deep. Um, so, you know, in the bathroom taking gravity bong rips and somebody's asking you, like, so where are you from? And, you know, I start going into this really detailed story. Um, which involves like all this sort of very sober, ironically sober confession of all of these really traumatic events. Um, and I thought this was like clear evidence that I was totally fine. Um, being a really left brain person, it sort of was this indication that because I could verbalize it, um, everything was totally okay. Um, although, yeah, obviously. Um, and this sort of performance, which was so, you know, 
repetitious in my life at this time became known among my friends simply as Darren's life story. And it was something they kind of goaded me into when a new person joined our group. Um, so yeah, and I just kept on telling it. Um, anyway, my therapist at that time, um, who was doing her practicum um, with me and, and my logeria, um, was, was really saw right through this actually. And I'm pretty sure that the only thing that she said to me in twice weekly sessions that I actually remember was, um, Darren, I think that you use your words to control your emotions. And um, I obviously was like, that's complete bullshit. Like, what are you talking about? Um, but to be honest, um, it wasn't until a few years later that that became a little bit more uh, self-evident to me. And you know, to sort of fast forward a little bit, um, I'm not really big on psychoanalysis, although by now you can tell that I'm big on psychotherapy. Um, but Freud has a concept which I think is really instructive um, in light of this story, which is in, developed in his essay um, from 1920 called Beyond the Pleasure Principle. And it's called the repetition compulsion. And actually one of the four characteristics that he develops of this compulsion is, is actually called destiny neurosis, um, which I'm fairly sure that I was suffering from. And it's a condition in which um, an essential character trait, he says, is a quote, um, will always remain the same and which is um, gonna find its expression in the repetition of these traumatic events. So like I said, I mean, I felt that my ability to tell the story clearly without emotion was evidence that my emotions had been dealt with, but um, the winter break of my sophomore year was sort of when the repetition became a little more literal. And um, it took the form of me going and reconnecting with a, a long distance high school friend who I had lost touch with um, and who was about to join the army, um, oddly enough, on, after the Iraq war had just started. And we ended up through this sort of really weird um, Rube Goldberg crazy straw of events like in bed together. And um, that was a bit shocking. Um, and after, um, partially because she was a woman, so that was also another kind of like extra, like let's add to the trauma cake. Um, so anyway, she didn't make it through basic training and she landed after the deconstruction part, but before the reconstruction part in my dorm room in Washington, DC. And um, obviously I was like, well, duh, I'm gonna leave school and move to Austin with you and help you rebuild your life. Um, at which, yeah, right? Like, good idea. Um, at which point, um, you know, she started to develop this sort of secret uh, meth habit, and I didn't really know about it. And then that ended really badly with her in rehab and me moving to New York City. Um, so, fresh start 2.0. Um, and this time I was feeling like a little bit less confident about the articulation of my trauma narrative. Um, it's still pretty fresh. Um, so, but on the advice of someone I had just met, a, a new friend and someone I sort of had a crush on, I ended up in the office of this therapist, shockingly, um, this woman, J. Robin Powell, if you're ever in New York, um, who was a sort of denizen of the 1970s downtown dance scene, um, but also a licensed therapist, I should say. She's a professional. Um, and she did this incredibly powerful thing in our first session, and she said, so we're not going to talk, basically, at all. Um, I was like, so what are we going to do? Um, and what we ended up doing was a series of weekly kind of guided meditations and body scans where we would go through systematically each part of the body and end with a couple of questions. Um, most notably, the two questions, is there anything you need to know right now? And where in your body is that coming from? So the first session, um, my answer was obviously my jaw. 
is the place where I feel most, <laughs> most like, let's talk. Um, <laughs> she's just like, no. Um, so instead we did this like really bizarre exercise where I um, had to move my jaw in all directions very slowly and deliberately. And um, I felt ridiculous. I actually felt um, when I, I was like in that position, that's very phallic, we're back to Freud, um, um, that, you know, my, my mouth like actually like took up the whole room and, um, and it sort of swallowed all light and air. And, um, you know, at the end she was like, good, okay, good. And so we'll see you next week. Um, and I walked out sort of shimmering um, in, in terror and um, also feeling like for the first time that my little like prefrontal cortex Descartes was like, Oh my God, if you keep doing this, you're gonna lose your ability to speak. Literally, like become a mute. Um, but actually um, this, this began um, because I was kind of eager to experiment with that and also to report back to this crush who had suggested that I go there in the first place. Um, <laughs> the beginning of a four year uh, process of basically re-articulating every part of my body and rebuilding um, from that experience, that very physical experience, um, a sort of history of emotional um, memory. And that work actually is what illuminated um, this way in which I had pr profoundly sort of over-invested myself in um, one way of narrativizing my trauma, my life story. Um, it interrupted this sort of endless cycle of linguistic kind of self-reference and brought me back to that obvious lie that I told when I was 12 years old, which is that I, I wasn't angry and I wasn't frustrated um, on the basis of, of having to deal with the experience of a, a mother in prison. Um, so yeah, I mean, basically that combined with uh, a series of ego annihilating activities that I've continued after that um, has led me to this understanding of, of the utter incapacity of language um, to deal with my dramas. Thanks. Darren Patrick, ladies and gentlemen. You're listening to the Trampoline Hall Podcast. I'm Misha Goldman. Up next, the Q&A. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Are there, are there any questions? Uh, uh, yes, you sir. Yeah. What is a gravity ball? What, what is, is a gravity ball? Um, well, the way we used to make them was by taking it to... Um, a two-liter milk, plastic milk container and um, putting, like, uh, constructing a bowl on top of it and then using water, like a trash can filled with water. And you light it and you light it and you pull it up and it creates a, a chamber filled with uh, smoke, which you then, like, in, that's exhaling, but you inhale it and you get really stoned. <laughs> and then you tell your life story. Because um, that's normal. 
There, there, there you go. So uh, a, a helpful hint. Um, uh, yes, yes, you, sir, yes. In your research and in personal experience, um, is, is narrativizing trauma a good thing, a healthy thing, or a bad thing? So in general, yeah. is narrativizing, just to repeat, is narrativizing trauma healthy or, or bad? Is it, is it? Yeah, I kind of expected um, that question, and I don't know that it's possible for me to generalize. Like, I would say that for me, um, there was a point to which it was useful, um, and the point after which it stopped being useful was like the 900th time that I repeated this story. Um, but, you know, there's different registers of trauma, too. Um, so for me, like, this is a very personal experience of trauma, and because I'm very linguistically oriented, um, yeah, it was a very constraining experience. Um, although I wasn't really aware of that um, until you know I started feeling like a little bit more embodied about that experience. So yeah, I don't know that I would say like nobody should talk about their traumas because it's a very dangerous. That's a very dangerous pronouncement to make. Some people really need to verbalize those things. Like you know, is it better for kids to do it? Is it better for kids than adults? Um, I don't know. I think that the, the information that I read about childhood trauma and the formation of a narrative always assumed a sort of very particular therapeutic environment. Um, so it, again, it wasn't like the speech tournament, um, where it's like, that's like where you should start. <laughs> um, it, was more like, it was more like with your therapist, you know, drawing pictures with crayon and everything, like, you know, and like doing, like making, it clear what happened, so it kind of gives you a little bit of distance from it. I think. I guess I'm curious, like what, like what narrativizing? Yeah. Like, is that that something distinct? I think from just telling the story. Like, does mm. that mean something? Yeah. Um, I think at some point, like there was a slippage between the the sort of bare relation of facts. Right. Um, so the reality that this is an important part of my past, which characterizes a little bit about perhaps like how I cope or other things like that. And then this, the, the part of it which like knows every single moment of tension and anticipates every single moment of tension and waits and breathes in a certain way. Like and then like storytelling. Yeah, the story and then drops telling, the bomb, right. exactly. Which is what you did when you were 12. Like you did it in a yeah. very dramatic way. Yeah, like... well, I mean, when I, yeah, when I was 12, it, it was very scripted. And, right. then it, and then as I sort of, as it became more layered in some ways, like it took on that characteristic, but more organically. So it wasn't quite as obvious. Like, I could put down the speech and leave, you know, and then, right. but yeah, yeah, you know. Right. Okay, but so, so that, and that's what narrativizing is, is then, is to, is to like craft it into a story in some sort of way? Yeah, like, I mean, I think the initial act like wasn't necessarily the problem per se, but it was the moment at which like that tool became available to me. Right. And that tool sort of proliferated in such a way into my other strategies, like as life went on, as more things happened. Um, that it, yeah, I think that's what narrativization means to me is the is the creation of a very particular, repeatable, um, kind of airtight story for a listener. For a listener, yeah. I guess that's for an audience, that's for key. For an audience, that's, for an that's audience. what I yeah. For an like audience, narrativization, having a story yeah, yeah. to tell yourself, or it's, but in your case, it's really it's about being able to present it to an audience. Yeah, so, for okay. sure. All right, okay. Like, uh, yes, in the corner over there. Yeah. What are parts of your narrative that you've always left out when you told? Are there parts of the narrative oh. that you left out when you told the story? Um, yeah, like it's hard to remember exactly. Like I think probably when I was first away at school, like I kind of left out some of the parts that were more live wires. Like that was the first time that I was really being um, more experimental about being queer and all of that. So I don't think I was talking about that as self-consciously. Like I went for the big fish, you know, it was like my mom went to jail, you know, like just like boom. People were like, what? You know, it was very, <laughs> yeah, it wasn't like, and right now I'm feeling, you know, it was never about that moment and never about that 
sort of emotional, the emotional reality of that moment. So it's hard for me to say really specifically, like I never categorically excluded this singular fact, but I think it, it was never really about that one moment, yeah. Okay, all right, uh, you sir, yes, over there. What was the first line of your narrative? What was um, the first line of, of the 12 year old narrative? Yeah, you know, I tried really hard to find the speech. Um, I actually got in touch with, um, with Ms. Gale um, uh, for the first time in a, in a lot of years to see if she had it in her archives. And actually, it was the only speech that she didn't have in her archive. Um, so, yeah, it's like, really? I, right, kind of like suspicious, Whoa, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, I know. She was a bit, she's very, like, now that I think about it, she's very like spy agency. Like, oh, sorry, that's yeah. not in the record. Wow. Um, <laughs> I know, like, I couldn't Ed Snowden my way into that speech. And, but no, I don't remember the first line, honestly. I only remember the last line because it was such a, it was such a device, you know. It was such a, a yeah. hook, like, oh, I gotcha. <laughs> Do you remember thinking of that? Like, you remember being a kid and being like, oh, I know. Oh, yeah, it was like total, yeah. It was You're like, the, this is going to work. I'm going to win, yeah. <laughs> I was like, I want to win, obviously. Yeah. Uh, 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 yes, yeah, you, ma'am, yeah. Um, did you tell this story had you told the story before you said the speech, or was that like really your first time telling that, it? I think, as far as I remember, that was really the first time I put it together in that way. Yeah. So I had practiced it, obviously, for an audience before that, but um, it was actually still happening in some, like, in a very real way when when I gave the speech. So, and was yeah. that at school? That was um, well. So it was at the it was at the high school that I ended up going to, but at the time I was at Saint Mel. Um, so it wasn't, wasn't your classmates in the audience? No, it was okay. mostly um, like strangers. Okay, so it wasn't like you suddenly went to school next day and all of a sudden you're the no. kid whose mom was But people jail. knew, I mean, people knew, okay. yeah. Like it was a pretty small Catholic church community. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, uh, uh, you over there, yes, you, sir. Uh, do you still tell your life story? Do you no, still tell your yeah. life story? <laughs> well, I mean, other than tonight. Um, not, no, not like that, actually. Like that moment of, the moment after I left... Austin and when I moved to New York was actually the like the decisive moment when I stopped doing that. Yeah. How was there something that triggered it then? Like was there I a... think it was the like the the actual experience I was having then. So there were a lot of like really similar emotional triggers about that relationship and so I think it was an unavoidable like tsunami of emotion that like propelled me into that move and I, I think it was just not possible for me to pull out of that in that moment in a clear way. So was it like that this past story was so big, like this past story that had been so big in all your life mm -hmm. that finally there was actually something yeah. present that, that was so big that it overshadowed that older story? Is, is that No, I think it, it became, like the reason I was intrigued by the Freud quote was that it actually became this sort of destiny neurosis. Like it, I, had be, I had bonded with this person actually um, that I moved to Austin with. Right. I had bonded with this person over a specific experience of trauma um, like similar parentage, etc. Um, so yeah, so I think like it was this moment of like, oh shit, like this is what, you know, not that like I was fully responsible, but it sort of drew me to that kind of personality. So personality there was a link between similar. the, sorry, I, I think maybe you made this clear in your speech, but maybe yeah. I'm only understanding it now, which is that there was a link between the repetition of telling the story mm. and that this was going to lead to a repetition of living the story. Is I that, felt is that like, that like that in that moment more clearly than any other point in my life. I don't think though, like the problem I have with psychoanalysis is that like you never get out of that trap. Really, that's how I feel. Of retelling the story. Yeah, the linguistic trap. Like everything is governed by this symbolic order, you know. Right. And I felt like the embodiment experience was something that really broke that that sense of destiny. For the me. embodiment experience with the other therapist of doing. Yeah, this yeah, okay. exactly. Um, uh, 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 yes, back there. Yes. Uh, did your last therapist in New York ever ask you to tell the story? 
Did your therapist in New York ever ask you to tell no, the story? No, no, no. It was not something that when I arrived in her office, I really um, presented as a coherent narrative. Like we did the sort of typical intake interview where I gave a little bit of my family history. And so she was aware that I had like experiences with addicted parents and depression, et cetera. So she had the sort of general like profile, um, but she didn't get the, like the full force version. No, I never told her. Mm -mm. Um, oh, uh, uh, no, all right, you, yes, you, sir, yeah. <laughs> uh, does, does your mom know that you are telling the story tonight? No, I didn't tell her that I was telling the story tonight, but I think she'd be really in favor of it. She would be in favor of it? Have yeah, time. yeah. Uh, she's a really, um, and I was wondering if someone was going to ask about her, she's, yeah. a, she's a very rebellious woman, obviously. I mean, <laughs> actually, and not obviously, because I didn't really tell you anything about what happened, but um, she's very big on sort of radical honesty and truth-telling, and she's very much a, a sort of rebel, I think, and I think she'd be really into it. Like, recently she dyed her hair pink, um, bright pink, because she decided that while she had an experience of being judged on her past, um, like disclosing on job applications that she was a felon, um, she had never had the experience as a white woman of being so immediately judged on her looks, so she wanted to know what that was like. So, like, that's the kind of political <laughs> tactic that my mom is working with. That is with. pretty badass. Yeah. If, like, you're, like, if yeah. you're like, being a felon doesn't marginalize yeah, she's you like, you know, like, I'm really kinda, used to the felon kinda, thing, kinda, you know. up the ante Yeah, she's bit. like, so, you know, code pink, right? Like, whoo! Wow, that that's really, my, yeah, but that's that my mom. That is pretty I think she'd be okay with that. All right, okay, so go to you, you back there, yes. So I'm yeah. wondering if you think that telling a trauma narrative is as much about entertaining other people as it is about your own sort of healing process and the relationship. Between right. What's the relationship between like entertaining other people when you tell the trauma narrative? Um, I think in that moment it was like, hmm. Do you mean like now, or do you mean yeah, then? Just in general, all yeah. the time, all the time. Yeah, there were, that was something I really thought about a lot, like in the decision to make this the topic of the talk tonight. Um, and I feel like the difference between now and then, which is maybe the way that I would answer your question, if that seems fair, um, is that then it was basically the only tool that I had, and now that's not really the case. Um, so I actually feel like a, a greater sense of intimate connection to that experience now than I ever did then. Then it was really uh, like a very, like when I look at what I was doing then, now, I understand that it was like definitively about distance and control and like all of those very rigid things. It was about doing it like, Sober, like soberly, but you know what I mean. Right, right. Mm. So, so, so different. So, so that, so that, so you can get past that mm. control. I guess, I guess there's something in the question that was resonating yeah. for me that I was, that I'm still trying to figure out, and I'm not sure if I can, I can get at it. But that thing about doing it, doing it to entertain an audience or whatever. That that sort of part. Like when I, when I think about the idea of forming a narrative about yeah. it, that the thing that I always think that I, that I was inclined to think of at first when you start talking about it was the idea of forming a narrative. That to me, what a narrative is is that you have a bunch of events in the world, and then what mm. a narrative is is like a structure for making sense yeah. of them. Yeah. But the, the things that you describe aren't so much a structure for making sense of them as a structure for making an entertaining drama for a listener hmm. out of them. And do you, yeah. I guess I'm curious whether you experience those activities as distinct activities. Like was there, is there a story that you tell yourself that's the story about how you make sense of this that's different from the story that you tell to an audience to win a trophy? Yeah, I mean, I think in, yeah, like there's a few layers to that you know, question, right? Yeah. So like, I don't, like, is this a sense-making activity, like this particular version? Well, is there, like, is there a sort of meta-narrative, like that's how I understood a little bit of what I was doing in preparation to, to give it this way, because I've never yeah, given yeah. it with this amount of reflexivity, I guess. Yeah, well, this is the story of the story. This is the story, right? yeah, this is the sort of meta-narrative, but like of. to distinguish between the kind of narrative which is about making sense of what happened yeah. um, versus like the sense that I make of it for myself. Like for me, there is, 
I mean, maybe this is like a very existential response, but for me, those activities of embodiment, of meditation, et cetera, are all about not attaching to specific narratives. Sure. Um, and so while I understand that these events are like factual things that marked me in a particular way, um, if I become really obsessively connected to them, then I'm reinforcing a particular significance that they have for me versus accepting that they happen and then like also seeking to allow them to pass, like knowing that they will probably reassert themselves at some right. point. So it just doesn't have to be a story that yeah, you carry Yeah, like it with doesn't you. have to be this like, like engine of narrative. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Okay, all right, cool. Um, uh, I'm going to go to you. Yes, to you, yes. Um, how have you felt uh, accessing your body memory How has how has how has the body memory stuff destabilized the linguistic stuff? Yeah, I mean, I think the first experience of it in that moment, like in the first appointment that I had with with Robin, um, was that it was like the risk was total destabilization. Like I, I really felt that I would, I for a week I was petrified of actually losing the ability to speak, which ended up not being like a rational fear. <laughs> like I don't know, but um, but in the in the long term, like the or in the, in the longer term of doing that work, um, I think it's about an effort which is persistent because I still rely heavily on the verbal, like that's what I do, I parse words, like I do a lot of philosophy and stuff in my regular work. So um, it's about not getting so deeply invested in those sort of semantic parsings to confuse them for my actual self. Like, and that's, I think, the kind of difference. If, so, that, if that makes sense. Like the self is something that I, that I do or that I feel, whereas like the language is, is more of a, it's also a creative act, but it's a creative act which has a, a very different valence than, than the movement. Like it's scripted in a different way. Right. So just being able to experience yourself as a thing other than like the words coming out? Yeah, exactly. Like I'm not the same thing as my thoughts. I'm not the same thing as my feelings. Right. Okay, cool. Um, uh, yes, okay. Yeah, yeah, I'll see you over there. Yeah. What do you think is the difference between people, for example, go through, so two people who go through a traumatic experience, but one of them, it kind of ruins their world and they end up, for example, in a kind of circle or cycle of mm. bad stuff versus those who come out of it really strong. So the question, the question, just to repeat for those who might not have heard, is what, how do you how do you account for some people who 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 come out of traumas okay versus people who get stuck in stuck in something? Yeah, the, I mean, I guess there's a lot of different determinants, like. Um, to that outcome, right? But I also don't think of it as an outcome because it's also a process. And I think that part of the understanding of the process, like the process nature of the trauma is that it becomes less significant over time by not like allowing it to be so dominant in this uncontrolled way. For me, this is my experience. Not that I would say the end result is I'm really strong and I never have to worry about it. I mean, the reality is that like when you have these kinds of predispositions, whatever, some people explain it genetically, some people explain it socially, like it's probably a combination of these things. Like it's something that I realize at some point I have to be aware of this kind of all the time, but I don't have to be obsessed with it, right? Like I can trust myself. And I'm lucky to have had so many fucking therapists, I guess. I mean, and I don't know that that's a, that's a set of tools that everyone is availed to. Um, and so I think there are a lot of different determinants, like probably social determinants and economic determinants that like lead to that possible outcome for people. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so, so there you go. Lots of things. A lot <laughs> of things. Of, I don't that know. It was a pretty good comprehensive list. Yeah, I tried. How many, let me ask something. When you, when, at the peak of telling this story, when you were, when you were really like telling a story, yeah. off, how often would you, do you think you told this story? Oh my God. Um, like in what, like it would be once a week? Or? Like every time I met somebody new so that I liked. Person, yeah. You'd be like, here's how I yeah, I was like, oh, I want so you I to think them. I'm really complex. And like I told this story. 
um, which in retrospect, I can't believe I had any friends like at that time because <laughs> it's like a really fucked up thing to do to people, I feel. Um, it was a way of sort of putting it on them. But I mean, I also, one thing I didn't le put in the talk because I didn't really have time was um, there was actually a like another sort of messed up thing. Like I like a lot of weird pathologies here, but my friend, a friend of mine, freshman year of college, and I also used to play this game where we would tell fake life stories. Like we would make up life stories. Right. Yeah, to people that we felt like we weren't going to invest ourselves in just to see like what kind of shock value. Oh my God. Like to see like what kind of shock value we could, we could extract like by telling these really egregious stories. Right, right, right. Yeah. And so you'd go around and you'd tell, and you'd be like, well, we'd be I'm like not sitting on the benches the... in front of the dorm you know, smoking and like it was the early weeks that people were really open and asking questions right. and, and they'd be like, so where are you from? And I'd be like, you know, my parents are diplomats. I was in Washington, D.C. So it was like, right. sure. there were a lot of like really posh people and that was not my experience. So it was a right. way to try on like those other kinds of experiences, I guess. And also just like fuck with people. Right, right. So, yeah. so, 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 so you had, so you tell this story every time you met someone unless you told them an even yeah, crazier story. Yeah, I thought it story. was a, like for me, yeah, exactly. Like I thought for me it was a way, it was like a way of showing like something meaningful to someone. Like it was a very bizarre are, so telling this story. Yeah, telling, telling the, the telling the actual yeah. life story was a way of conveying like, hey, I want you to know something deep. Do you about feel that was me. a way to get like intimate with people quickly? Yeah, I thought or, so. I thought how, so. How often do you tell the story now? I don't. At all? No. I mean, oh. it's like when it comes up in some way. Right. I I never do it as a coherent narrative anymore, okay. though. So like, yeah. I mean, but if I were talking about any one of those moments in my life, like then I would feel comfortable expressing like, hey, when I was 15, like this humiliating thing happened, or you know, like talking about my mother, etc. Like, but more in an organic way. Right. Like it's not like, okay, we're at that point. Like I'm gonna tell you. What was it like to tell it tonight? Um, I don't know. It was like kind of like a tunnel. Um, <laughs> I mean, part of it is being on stage and, and doing it again, but um, I don't know. It feels good. Like I feel a bit, I feel a bit like consolidated about that experience in some way. I, I felt, I felt very uncertain, particularly about that question, which is like, well, aren't you just sort of doing the same thing now? Mm. Um, but it kind of puts the other strategies that um, speak both to those events in particular and to like newly generated traumatic experiences in a different kind of perspective. So. It feels like grounding, I guess, would be my answer. Okay. Yeah. That feels like a satisfying place to end then. So let's wrap it up there. Thanks. Ladies and gentlemen, Darren Patrick, ladies and gentlemen. Trampoline Hall was created in Toronto in the 21st century by Sheila Hetty and is hosted by me. This episode's lecture was chosen by Kelly Jenkins. The podcast is produced by Josh Block. Our theme music was composed by Matt Smith. Trampoline Hall is a sumo audio podcast. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. You can also find us on Twitter or Facebook. If you enjoyed the podcast, please leave us a review or positive rating on iTunes. It really helps a lot. It helps us reach more listeners. I'm Misha Goldman. Thanks for listening. It's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that 
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.